It's not fair. It's not fair. Just not fair. Who do they think they are? Those latecomers, those idlers. They think they're just like us, the tillers of the field who are faithful, and it just isn't fair. Can't you hear the complaints of those laborers and the grumbles? They were tired. Day labor, day labor was and is and remains hard work, and it was inconsistent. They never knew when they were going to work or if they were going to work, and the common wage, we know, was one denarii. Not exactly sure what the equivalent that is in dollars, but it wasn't enough to support a family, barely enough to support a person. But they were willing to do it because it was a job, and it was a fair wage for a day, not for an hour. And then here comes the low life, the lazies, showing up at 5 p.m., and they get the same. What is fair about that? And you know what? They were right. That was a fair complaint, and it was a fair question to ask the, ask the boss. This parable is really like all of Jesus' parables. It's a story, as Margarita so beautifully explained, to illustrate a theological point about God. And the people who heard Jesus 2,000 years ago would have thought this very strange. It was strange then, and it was strange, it's strange now. But then all of his stories about the kingdom are kind of strange. They don't fit into our perception of how it ought to, to be. We view these things with 21st century eyes in our free and capitalist society where the harder you work, the expectation is you are compensated accordingly. But even back then, it was the same. So it is very odd what he says here as he tries to explain in terms that his audience could understand how exactly this rule of God is to work in, the, in our minds and in our hearts, as he tries to explain how God operates. And ultimately, as in most of his parables, he is reminding us that God doesn't operate like we do. There's this strain of thinking all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. God does not, nor has God ever, operated by our standards and expectations of what we think is fair. Think about it. Not fair that Adam and Eve got pumped out of the garden, kicked out of the garden. Just one little indiscretion. Not fair that Cain didn't receive the same punishment he meted out on his brother Abel, and that would have been death. Not fair that Noah was put to such great ridicule to build a boat and stock it while the rest of the world was destroyed by a flood. Not fair that the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt when they had been invited there as an act of mercy. We could go on and on and on through the scripture, all of this about what's fair and not fair, until we arrive at the most important question, which is what's fair about an innocent man hanging on a cross? What is fair in this world for us looks and feels very different to the heart of this world 
and that is our loving creator. And we don't always agree or understand. For Adam and Eve, it was an act of mercy. God was protecting them. For Cain, it was the same. For Noah, God's regret in the rainbow and the promise never, ever to do that again. For Israel, God provided a wonderful deliverance. God heard the cries and acted through Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And as for Jesus Christ on that cross, that's not ever something God demanded. Humanity put that innocent man there, you and I. But through him, we see the depth of God's willingness to love us, to save us, to redeem us, and to heal us. So you see, in this parable, like all the others, there's the same message that Jesus is constantly telling about what it means to live under the rule of this loving God into the reign of God, or as the scripture says, into the kingdom of God. And it's not the same as living under an emperor or a king. It's better because what is just and right in God's eyes always is held in tension with God's heart that is filled with grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion. Always those two things are together. They are never separate. We see it as well in the other parables. Uh, Jesus in Luke's gospel, and you know these, uh, has those wonderful parables about the lost, the lost coin, when the woman turns the house upside down until she finds it, not because it's a coin and it's wealth, but because it was precious for her survival. The lost sheep, remember that? That parable Jesus tells us, 99 in the pen, one's missing, the shepherd leaves the others and goes out into the high wilderness to find the one that is lost, the one has, that has strayed away. And imagine when, when the shepherd finds that sheep filled with tangles and thorns and probably wounded, bleeding, stinky, and yet the shepherd hoists that sheep on his shoulders and rejoices. Rejoices. It doesn't mean he loves the other 99 any less, but he rejoices because that one little sheep is precious to the shepherd. And to the world. My favorite is the prodigal son, and you all know that story about the younger son that goes off and spends his wealth and then comes crawling back, and daddy welcomes him, runs out on the road to greet him with open arms and gives him his ring and gives him his cloak and kills the fatted calf and has a big party. And then there's the older brother who says, uh-uh, what is this? And he confronts his father. This isn't just. I'm here with you. I have worked and slaved away to help you. And here he comes, this deadbeat, and you welcome him? What is that? It's not fair. And do you remember what the father says? He says, oh, my son, everything I have is yours. Everything, for I love you. But your brother was lost, and now he is found and I rejoice. I have love for you both. And that beautiful illustration that Margarita gave us about loving your own children, not more or less differently, but equally. The point, again, Jesus is making is, you know, in, in the Luke story, prodigal, the term prodigal means lavish and generous. So really, we shouldn't say that story is about a prodigal son but about a prodigal God. 
a God who will not be limited by our demands or expectations, a God who lavishes, lavishes mercy and compassion and love and forgiveness upon us. Hence, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Because there is enough. There is enough grace to go around. There is enough mercy to go around. There is enough forgiveness to go around. But that's a bit hard to take, you know? When you think the biggest sinner that I know is loved just as much by God as me. You may not like what that sinner is doing, but they are of value. That beggar or vagrant on the corner, regardless of the state or circumstances or what they're up to, is loved just as much by God as me, as us. Those people that look funny and dress funny and talk funny that we don't like or we don't understand or maybe even fear by the very nature of their creation in God's image are loved just as much by God as me. This story teaches us a lot. For once again, Jesus reframes how we as his followers are to look at the world, how to be in the world, how to act according to God's demand for both justice and mercy. So what do we learn today? We learn, first and foremost, that there is no way we can earn God's love or our value. We are loved and we are valued by our very creation. It's, it's a common human problem, especially for Christians, I think. We always divert to a little list in our heads, don't we? About if I only do this, if I could only do that, if I follow the rules, then I'm okay. I'm right with God. And the reality is we can't earn that. We follow the rules as a response to God's love for us because we love God back. But we don't have to list a checklist to earn our way into God's grace. God's grace demands a response. It is not coercive. The love of God in us makes us want to do good to be just, and to be compassionate in all the ways we can. We also learn that God's love for us is constant and abiding and big, big. And that same love is constant and abiding and big for everybody else. One of the saints in this church who has gone on to her glory, Mary Chancellor, um, in a class some years ago, Mary was wonderful, and she spoke her mind, and I just adored her. And she, we were talking about this very issue in one of our women's classes, and she said, Anna, I grew up thinking that I wanted God's mercy for me and God's justice for everybody else. <laughs> and I know now that it doesn't work that way. We don't get to assess anyone else's worthiness or worthlessness. It's not our job. That's what we learned today, too. We are simply to give thanks for the opportunity to work in God's vineyard, to work towards the goal together of God's abiding grace. 
give thanks that we're in the vineyard in the first place, no matter what time we get there. We learned today that there's no room for outside egos in God's justice and mercy, if it is to fill the world. That we can either answer God's call to the vineyard, which, by the way, is repeated and indiscriminate and unyielding, or not answer it. But if our lives are to have meaning and purpose and we are to fulfill the calling of our faith, as Paul so beautifully reminded us all last week with beautiful focus of the worship around our baptism, if we're to do that, then we must learn how. How it's possible to be in the vineyard with the latecomers and not let envy uh, or, or jealousy or unfairness uh, cloud our vision. Mostly we learn today that God, which St. Paul tells us and Luke tells us in Acts, God shows no partiality. No one gets what they deserve. Either way. We are all equally deserving and undeserving. And the opportunity we must accept is God's call to radical equality with one another. The upshot simply is that we are... We are God's people when we work towards mercy and justice. Not simply because it's the right thing to do, but it's what God's love calls us to do. So we must today uh, look at this beautiful parable and readjust our view of life perhaps a bit and count it all joy and see our lives as God's gift and strive to be a faithful worker in the vineyard alongside whoever shows up. It's many things, Jesus' word to us today, but I may be first and foremost, it's a call to humility, a call to goodness, remembering that all goodness comes from God. We live by certain assumptions. They just come to us. We assume certain things about other people. And I think what Jesus is asking us to do is to put aside those assumptions and listen to these assumptions which we know are true. We can every day assume that God loves us and all creation profoundly and deeply, too deep for even words. We can assume that we are all made in the image and likeness of God, no exceptions. We can assume that God's generosity is beyond anything in our wildest imagination. We can assume that we cannot earn God's love. It's just there. We cannot be distracted. The generosity of God is not about equity or proper disbursement or economics even or just rewards, but it's, a, it's about the undeserved gift of grace poured out for all that we are asked to live in and pour out as well. So today we must ask ourselves, how often do we stop to be grateful how, for simply the grace and mercy and forgiveness that God gives us? How often then do we stop to remember that, those things, and then to consciously try to give them to others? Jesus invites us to a new world, a new way of living, not of artificial constructs, 
that we create, but of the reality of God. And the reality is God is a lousy bookkeeper. And aren't we glad? So we have to stop seeing what we want and what we expect and open our eyes to the reality of God's goodness in a new vision with new eyes. Clear eyes that begin with grateful hearts. I um, want to tell you that, as, as I said, it's been ten, almost 10 years since I've been in this chancel at, at a pulpit here. And 10 years have passed, and some of you were so sweet last week to say to both Ted and I, oh, you haven't changed a bit. And we thank you for that. <laughs> but we have. We're 10 years older. And I want to share with you a little story as we conclude. Um, Ted's saying honk a little bit more, and I'm squinting a little bit more. And so every, we moved down into the M Streets when I was appointed to my last church, Oak Lawn, and um, we have one of those little Tudor houses. The rooms are kind of choppy, you know. And so every Christmas for the, the four, almost now five years that we've been there, uh, I do two Christmas trees. I do one in the living room, for, you know, so you can see from the street. And then I buy a little one, like a little Norfolk pine, and I put lights and things on it and put, excuse me, put it in our den, you know, so our kids can have Christmas everywhere. They could care less, but I do it anyway. And last year, this is a true story, I bought this beautiful little Norfolk pine. It was all wrapped in burlap, and it was just perfect and green and bright and brought it home and decorated it and watered it and bought a pot for it because I always put those fresh trees, the little pines, I try to either keep them as a house plant or put them in the yard. And I was going to buy some, oh, this will be wonderful when I plant it in the yard. And um, so spring came and I took it outside and took the burlap off of it and I would water it and it was stuck into a piece of wood. And I thought, oh, the little roots are growing in the wood. Isn't this astounding? I can just plant it. And Ted saw me out there and said, why are you watering that artificial tree? <laughs> and I said, get out. <laughs> it was plastic. <laughs> so my wonderful husband took it and planted it anyway. It's in our yard. <laughs> Point being, we see what we want to see, don't we? And sometimes we are um, overwhelmed by artificial perfection, right? And Jesus asks us today to take off uh, the blinders and to see with God's eyes always the other um, with grace and mercy and grateful hearts. Amen.